Welcome to Modern Babylon, Culture Contrarian. This is Ryan Miller. I'm going to do a little bit of an interruption to my broadcast, and I wanted to take time and do a series of broadcasts on a book that has finally made it to the top of my stack. Um, you know I like to read, and this one, I have a stack of them, and as I read them, I move further down in the stack, and this was next. And I've, I've known it's been there, I just haven't made it to it yet. It's called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates, subtitled A Proper Resistance to Tyranny and a Repudiation of Unlimited Obedience to Civil Government, from Matthew J. Trawahela. I'm probably saying his name wrong, so I apologize for that. So what I want to do is I'm going to go through a series, and I'm going to read this a chapter at a time and broadcast it on my podcast. Um, I thought this might be easier than people going and getting the book. You can just tune in to me reading it. And as I, I'm about halfway through. Um, as I was reading it, it was, it was quite powerful because I felt like I could have helped write this book. And I want you, as you hear this, me reading this book, measure it with the words that I have said and my actions for as long as you've known me. In addition, if you're bold enough to go back in my past, see if what I'm going to be reading to you is evidenced through my previous broadcasts, my previous writings, as far back as you want to go. So we're going to start with the introduction. In the course of human history, the abuse of authority by men through the arm of the state is not an uncommon occurrence. Western civilization has pillared safeguards to help prevent this. Nevertheless, the citizenry must remain vigilant and understand both the purpose and limitations of the state. If a citizenry does not know the purpose and limitations of the state, then the civil government can misuse its power because the citizenry is unable to measure when something is improper, when something improper is occurring. For there to be any indignation towards acts of tyranny by the state, one must be able to recognize that tyranny is taking place. <clears throat> Aldous Huxley, in his book Brave New World, I think I've referenced that a couple times, wrote of a citizenry of slaves who would love their enslavement. Huxley writes, A really efficient totalitarian state would be one in which the all-powerful executive of political bosses and their army of managers control a population of slaves who do not have to be coerced because they love their servitude. Unknowingly, Americans accepted the role of Huxley's servant-minded people for decades. This is due in part to the fact that people love comfort and tend to avoid conflict. However, the other part of the equation is that people have lost the yardstick by which they measure the limits of government. As a consequence, we in America become slave-like-minded people with the federal government acting more as a master than it is a servant providing justice for the people. When you go to Washington, D.C. today, you cannot help but notice that it has become like a fortress. The heavily fortified nature of the place reminds one of what Plato said to tyrant Dionysius when he saw him on the streets of Sicily surrounded by his many bodyguards. Quote, what harm have you done that you should need to have so many guards? End quote. 
In a very real sense, one is right to say our federal government has harmed the American people. Review the current federal laws, policies, and bureaucracies, and you cannot help but see that it has caused much harm to the institutions and traditions of our people. It is as if, over the course of time, we have been attacked and plundered. In the past, the pulpits in our nation instructed the people in the purpose, functions, and limitations of the state. Many pastors preached every year what became known as election and artillery sermons. These sermons were routinely preached during the first hundred years of our nation. Clergymen understood and taught that their congregations that God's word addressed all matters of life, including the matters of civil government. Today, however, most pulpits are, pulpits are silent about God's word when it comes to civil government. In fact, most teach unlimited obedience to the state, as there are as though there are no limitation to the state's rules. By default, they teach that whatever the civil government rules legislatively is therefore the will of God. These type of clergymen was even present near the Revolutionary War era. The Reverend William Gordon of Roxbury, Massachusetts, preached regarding such men in 1794 when he declared, Though the partisans of arbitrary power will freely censure the preacher who speaks boldly for, boldly for the liberties of the people, they will admire as an excellent divine the parson whose discourse is wholly in the opposite and teaches that magistrates have a divine right for doing wrong and are to be implicitly obeyed. Men professing Christianity as if the religion of the blessed Jesus found them to bow their neck to any tyrant. The authority of the state does have limits. America's present-day pulpits need to repent of their adulterous views regarding the state. True Christianity produces liberty. Even the Christ-hating 17th-century philosopher David Hume had to admit the precious sparks of liberty were kindled and preserved by the Puritans in England, and that, to this sect, whose principles appear so frivolous and whose habits so ridiculous, the English owe the whole freedom of their constitution. The church pulpits are historical means whereby the people are instructed from a theological foundation in the purpose, functions, and limitations of the state. When a citizen's view of the state is theologically driven, the state can no longer get away with doing whatever just tickles its fancy. This is because an informed citizenry, one which recognizes transcendental law, is vigilant and will not tolerate abuse or tyranny. 1 Corinthians 7.23 commands, Do not become the slaves of men. Because of human nature, however, men tend to want to be ruled and cared for rather than take on responsibility and cherish liberty. Because of human nature, tyranny from time to time raises its ugly head. Because of human nature, men will endure a long train of abuses and usurpations. However, men will endure a long train of abuses and usurpations only to a certain point. When the civil government continues to assault men's rights and liberties through unconstitutional, unjust, or immoral laws, policies, or bureaucratic decrees, honorable men will eventually weary of it and begin to take a stand. Those men who do begin to stand, however, want to be assured that their efforts are legitimate and proper, and, I say, loving 
and grace-filled. Thankfully, America's founders established three well-known boxes by which we can preserve liberty and resist tyranny. You ready for this? They're the ballot box, the jury box, and the cartridge box. The ballot box provides opportunity to remove unjust rulers through the vote. The jury box provides citizens not only the right to judge the facts in the case, but to judge the law itself. The jury can determine whether a law is being misapplied or can find a law unjust or immoral altogether. The jury can acquit on either basis, regardless of what the judge or jury instructions say. The cartridge box refers to an armed citizenry. America's founders knew that an armed citizenry not only helps repel an invading foreign force, but it also acts as a check against tyranny from our own government. But a lesser known tool, which the founders themselves employed, is the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. The lesser magistrate doctrine provides the best means to reign in a higher authority that has spurned its limitations. The doctrine of the lesser magistrate is rooted in scripture and found throughout the history of mankind. The doctrine offers great hope to a nation of people who groan under the yoke of tyrannical behavior by the state. This book assumes that the reader already understands the dire conditions of America. There have been countless books written over the last 20 years detailing America's demise and the march towards tyranny via the federal government. This book spends little time decrying darkness, rather this book is meant to bring hope and encouragement. It places within the hands of those concerned about our nation a blueprint and means by which a stand can be made against a federal government or a state government or a township or a municipality or a school board that has trampled on our Constitution, assaults our person, liberty, and property, and impugns the law of God. Americans are now a completely conquered people. We do not have to sit by hand-wringingly and passively submitting to our own destruction. However, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate provides a legitimate and proper means to restore order and resist tyranny. History has proven that peasant revolts are easily put down by the state. The lesser magistrate doctrine is effective in quelling abuses by the higher authority and does so often without the shedding of blood. This book is not, nor is it intended to be, a comprehensive or exhaustive declaration of the lesser magistrate doctrine. Rather, it is intended to be a primer, It's a starting place from which deeper study can be done by individuals. It is my hope that this book incites others to write further on this doctrine and awakens people to deeper love and fear for God and a greater vigilance to preserve liberty. My prayer is that this book might be useful in stopping America's death march into tyranny and oppression and point men back to Christ and his rule. Matthew Trewella. It's a beautiful introduction. We're going to dive in. This is called The Doctrine Defined in Chapter 1. In 39 AD, Publius Petronius, who was a Roman governor of Syria and Palestine, received an order from his superior Caligula, the emperor of Rome. Caligula, who was convinced of his own divinity, ordered Petronius to assemble half his army and install an image of himself in the Jewish temple at Jerusalem. Petronius had the statue of the emperor made in Sidon 
and prepared his troops while he wintered in Ptolemais. To the Jews, a statue of the emperor in the temple was a severe, severe affront to their religion. The Jews therefore sent numerous delegations during this time to protest before the governor concerning this law of the emperor. Petronius was so deeply moved by the reasoning of their protests that he wrote to Caligula that he would not enforce his order and entreated the emperor to annul it. No one Emperor Caligula received the letter from Governor Petronius. He became outraged and ordered Petronius to commit suicide. Soon after, however, Caligula was assassinated by his Praetorian guards. Fortunately for Petronius, the ship carrying the order for him to commit suicide arrived after the ship carrying the news of the emperor's assassination. The statue was never placed in the temple. Though Governor Petronius would not have known it as such, he was practicing what would later be termed by reformers such as John Calvin, Christopher Goodman, and John Knox as the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. We call it a doctrine because it is a Christian doctrine first formalized by the pastors of Magdeburg, Germany. The word magistrate is an old term referring to any in civil government with authority either elected or appointed. The Lesser Magistrate Doctrine declares that when the superior or higher civil authority makes unjust, immoral laws or decrees, the lesser or lower-ranking civil authority has both a right and a duty to refuse obedience to that superior authority. If necessary, the lesser authorities even have the right and obligation to actively resist the superior authority. For example, if Congress, the President, or the U.S. Supreme Court makes an unjust or immoral law or decree, a state legislator, le- legislature or governor could stand in defiance of their unjust law or decree and refuse to obey or implement it. Those lesser magistrates could, in fact, actively oppose, oppose such a law or decree. Even a city council or mayor could appropriately defy an unjust law or decree handed down by a higher authority. A memorable statement that serves as a summary for the doctrine of the lesser magistrate actually come from a higher magistrate. Roman Emperor Trajan, while appointing its subordinate authority, handed him a sword and instructed him, saying, Use this sword against my enemies if I, have, if I give righteous commands. But if I give unrighteous commands, use it against me. Isn't that funny? Because I've told a story about my relationship with my father and that particular sword. Historically, this doctrine was practiced before the time of Christ and Christianity, but it was Christian men who formalized and embedded it into their political institutions throughout Western civilization. For example, the nobles who stood on the field of Runnymede in England to take King John's tyranny to task in the year 1215 were Christian men. These lesser magistrates forced the tyrant king to sign a treaty acknowledging certain rights for men. The Magna Carta stood in defiance of tyranny and oppression and made clear that the state has limitations and that all are subject to the law, even government officials. That great document, the Magna Carta, was a product of a Christian culture. The Magna Carta played an important role 
and the historical process that led to the rule of constitutional law in the English-speaking world. Certain unjust and immoral actions by King John, along with the fiscal tyranny through taxation and fees, caused the nobles, who were functioning as lesser magistrates, to defy his higher authority. King John signed that document giving the people of England their cherished rights only because of the combined swords of the lesser magistrates who gathered to demand its signing. Calvin spoke of the lesser magistrate doctrine in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Amazingly, he did not appeal to scripture in his support of it. Rather, he appealed to pagan historical examples. But other reformers did give a scriptural foundation to the doctrine. John Knox, for example, in his appellation, wrote to the nobles of Scotland in 5058, cities over 70 passages of scripture to support the doctrine. Knox insisted that the nobles, as lesser magistrates, were responsible to protect the innocent and oppose those who made unjust laws or decrees. The teaching by Christian men about the lesser magistrate, God's sovereignty, covenant, the nature of man, and church government shaped the views of Western civilization that birthed constitutional governments. It would in what would become the United States, the lesser magistrate doctrine had a huge impact upon the thinking of our founders and upon our nation's people regarding government and law. Today, however, neither the magistrates nor the people know of this doctrine as America's pietistic infected pulpits have long been silent regarding it. Amen. If ever this nation needs to understand the lesser magistrate doctrine, it is now. The attacks upon the law of God are ferocious and relentless. The preborn are murdered and sodomy is proliferated. And moral and unjust edicts are commonplace. The assault upon our freedom and liberty seems to be a daily undertaking by those in high office. But one thing has not changed. The lesser magistrate has a duty before God to uphold the good regardless of the new definitions of law created by the state or policy by the state actors. I just added that. Historically, the practice of the church has been when the state commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God commands, men have a duty to obey God rather than man. The Bible clearly teaches this principle. The lesser magistrate is to apply this principle to his office as magistrate. When an unjust decree is made by a higher authority, the lesser magistrate must choose to either join the higher magistrate in his rebellion against God or stand with God to the unjust or immoral decree. The lesser magistrate doctrine is clearly founded in Scripture and seen in history, and it is as actively exercised in our day. In a later chapter, we will look how lesser magistrates are utilizing their authority against federal tyranny in our nation today, as well as look at the need for further action by the lesser magistrates in order to reign in the federal government that has spurned its constitutional restraints. As our nation continues to sink into rebellion, immorality, and depravity, the lesser magistrate doctrine needs to be explained both to the magistrates themselves and to the people of our country.
I'm at 20 minutes right now. I want to keep going on to chapter two because I want to get this new word into your head. It's a very powerful word, and I want, I want, <laughs> I'm reading it, I want it to take root. And the title of the chapter is called Rooted in Interposition. This is fabulous. Fabulous, folks. This is chapter two. The doctrine of the lesser magistrates is rooted in historical biblical doctrine of interposition. Interposition is that calling of God which causes one man to step into the gap, willingly placing oneself between the oppressor and his intended victim. Interposition is demonstrated when someone or some group interposes or positions themselves between an oppressor, let's call it a school board, and the intended victim, let's call it the citizens and children of the school, and insert modern Babylon cultural crying, cultural contrarian as the interposer. This can be done verbally or physically. Well, in the case of Ryan at the school board, I'm doing it both. I'm doing it verbally and I'm standing there in their presence. The lesser magistrate demonstrates the doctrine of interposition by placing himself between the tyrant or bad law and the people. When Petronius defied Caligula, he was performing an act of interposition as a lesser magistrate on behalf of the Jews. To demonstrate his act of interposition, Petronius actually called the Jews to meet with him at Tiberias. When the Jews arrived, they were horrified to see Petronius' army, two legions, assembled before them. The Jews stood on one side while the army stood on the other. Petronius stepped between them. He then informed the Jews that this army is, was assembled under the authority of Emperor Caligula, who had ordered the army to war against and destroy them if resistance was made to having the image placed in the temple. But the governor Petronius went on to say, Yet I do not think it is just to have such a regard to my own safety and honor as to refuse to sacrifice them, meaning his own safety and honor, for your preservation, who are so many in number and endeavor to preserve the regard that is due your law, which as it has come down to you from your forefathers. So do you esteem in your worthy of your utmost contention to preserve it, nor with the supreme assistance and power of God will I be so hardy as to suffer your temple to fall into contempt by the means of this imperial authority. I will, therefore, send to Caligula and let him know that your resolutions are and will assist your suit as far as I am able, that you may not be exposed to suffer on account of the honest designs you have proposed to yourselves, and may God be your assistant." for his authority is beyond all the contrivances and power of men. Governor Petronius in illustrated his interposition by standing between the emperor's soldiers and the Jews. He took a stand between the unjust law of the people. The interposition of the lesser magistrate requires a willingness to risk personal security for the sake of justice. Such risk is paramount to the lesser magistrate doctrine. Scripture and history are loaded with acts of interposition. In Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh ordered that all male Hebrew newborns should be killed by the midwives. The midwives refused to do so. 
and even employed deceit to cover their refusal to comply with this, his order. They interposed on behalf of these helpless babies and stood in defiance of tyranny. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, King Saul made a foolish decree forcing a fierce battle stating, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. His son Jonathan had not heard it and ate some honey. Saul was going to have him killed for eating it. But the scripture says all the people came to his defense and interposed on his behalf, declaring, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance on Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. In the 4th century, the churchman Ambrose interposed on behalf of the righteousness when he blocked the doors of the church to refuse Emperor Theodosius' entry. Theodosius had unjustly killed 7,000 people in Thessalonica as reprisal for certain men in the city having killed Roman officers. Ambrose stood in the doorway of the church and denied the emperor access until he publicly repented and made restitution. Theodosius did repent and made restitution for his actions. A recent example of interposition in history is the Romanian Revolution of 1989. Oh my gosh, it was brutal. The revolution actually began in the city of Timorosa, where Laszlo Tokes was the pastor of a reformed church. The Securitate, that's a secret police, came to arrest the pastor, a common occurrence in Coscuz, Romania. Many of those arrested were never heard from again. The people of the church learned of their pastor's impending arrest and gathered to blockade the doors of the church to interpose on his behalf and resist his arrest. The secret police sent to arrest Laszlo Tokes were accustomed to compliance. When people blocked the doors, they were stunned by these actions and merely parked their car down the street to wait the people out. As word spread, however, more and more people arrived to blockade access to the pastor. Within a few days, more than a thousand people had surrounded the church and would not leave. News of this spread to other areas and a nationwide revolution broke out. Two weeks later, Cusco and his wife lay dead on the palace steps. Their two-decade reign of terror was brought to an end. In America, and an example of interposition took place in the late 1980s and early 1990s when tens of thousands of people were arrested at abortion clinics for blockading the doors, interposing on behalf of the helpless preborn threatened with a brutal death. I want to pause for a second. I've often re- referred to one of my spiritual mentors as the glowy guy, and he is one of those people that did that and more and went to prison, and he has friends to this day in prison who are part of that movement of standing and blockading and rescuing women on the abortion table. I don't have what he has. Love him. When the press questioned legitimacy of such acts, they were informed by those involved that they were simply practicing the historic Christian doctrine of interposition, When it comes to the interposition of the lesser magistrate, he interposes for the people as a whole, placing himself between the unjust laws or decrees of the higher authority and the people. 
He also acts in defense of the rule of law. Daniel did this. When Daniel refused to obey the immoral decree of King Darius not to pray for 30 days, he not only acted as an individual follower of the Lord, but also in his capacity as a lesser magistrate. Remember, Daniel was one of the three governors directly under Darius. Daniel took an omit and stand in defiance of this unjust law. The scripture says that when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Notice, he knew of the unjust law. His windows were open so all could see his non-compliance with the law. He knelt down on his knees so no one could mistake his defiance of the law, and he did it three times in one day to assure it would be seen. For his act of interposition, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, willing to jeopardize his own life on the behalf of the people as a whole, and to stand in defense of God's law and righteousness. Fortunately for Daniel, he lived to tell the story, and the rest is well-known history. The lesser magistrates act as a buffer for the people, placing themselves between the unjust laws or decrees of the higher authority and the people. Historical American jurisprudence recognizes that the doctrine of lesser magistrate is rooted in the doctrine of interposition. Black's Law Dictionary defines interposition as the doctrine that a state in the exercise of its sovereignty may reject a mandate of the federal government deemed to be unconstitutional or to exceed the powers delegated to the federal government. The concept is based upon the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, reserving to the states powers not delegated to the United States. Not surprisingly, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to reject the doctrine of interposition. Through the particular case in which they did, though the particular case in which they did so was justified, expressly delegated powers should not have been ruled against completely as they were in this case. Now, I need to review this because um, there's a footnote, 21, and it's Cooper v. Aaron, and I need to, and there's some more to that footnote. So I need to read that so I understand the rationale behind the Supreme Court to remove the doctrine of the interposition. The higher authority always wants to squelch any and all resistance to its authority. Americans' founders, however, understood that the acts of interposition were not dependent upon favorable, favorable rulings up by the higher authority. Amen. I can act in defiance to that unjust ruling by the court in my application of it. The founding of our nation was an act of interposition by lesser magistrates, the Declaration of Independence being the pinnacle. The legislatures of the colony sent delegates to comprise the First and Second Continental Congress. They represented the colonies. They were magistrates. The declaration they wrote cited the offenses and tyranny of the upper tier of British government, King George and the Parliament. This was especially necessary in light of the fact that the Parliament had no legitimate authority in the colonies because the colonies had been established by charters from the kings of England and were represented by their own legislatures. No taxation without representation representation referred to the fact that the colonies, unlike other realms of the British Empire, had no representation in Parliament and wanted none. 
but like the federal bureaucracies of today, Parliament had gradually assumed one power after another over a period of many decades, usurping authority from colony and king alike, often often with connivance of both king and parliament, thus becoming an overarching oppressor of the colonies. Patrick Henry, when he gave his famous give me liberty or give me death speech, underscored the tyranny of England's parliament, the hardened response of King George and the need for the Continental Congress to interpose on behalf of the people. Henry stated, Sir, we have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming. We have petitioned, we have remonstrated, we have supplicated, we have prostrated ourselves before the throne. We have done protests, we have done petitions, we have done emails, we have done three-minute speeches, pardon me, and, and have implored its interposition to arrest the tyr- tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. Our petitions have been slighted. slighted. Our remonstrances have produced additional violence and insults. Our supplication have been disregarded and we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. In vain, after these things, may we indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. Patrick Henry in his speech became famous precisely because he was a lesser magistrate in the Virginia legislature and the House of Burgesses. The common people rallied to the revolt of this lesser magistrate when he stood up and spoke. Such interposition of the lesser magistrate provides action by duly constituted lawful authority. When individuals see immoral or unjust actions become law and policy in their nation, they desire to see the injustice corrected. The interposition of lesser magistrate provides the strength needed to resist a tyrant, and acts as a buffer for the common man, who might be persuaded to resist unlawful encroachment alone and by his own strength. So we just went through two chapters in the introduction. As I'm hoping you can tell, there's some synergy with the words coming out of this book, the way that I speak and the way that I act, and I hold it to God's standard, not mine. I fail every day. Gosh, I fail every day. But I interpose. I have interposed my entire life since I was in my teenage years. Whether I had the physical structure to do so, I had the intellect that pushed me in that direction. So, man, this is Modern Babylon diving through the doctrine of lesser magistrates. I hope you find this profitable and put this in your intellectual pipe and smoke it and inhale deep. Everybody have a great day and stay tuned for chapter three. Take care.